Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 117, The Esoteric Plotinus Part 2, Unsaying the Real. In episode 115, we looked at Plotinus in terms of the esoteric culture, or culture of the esoteric, of the Platonism of his time, more or less. We saw that in terms of how he positions himself vis-a-vis an ancient lineage, transmitting the truth in an esoteric fashion, and of the strictures he placed on truth's further dissemination, he was very much the kind of esoteric Platonist perennialist we've come to know and hopefully to love in our story of the perennialist current within Middle Platonism. We also saw that Plotinus brought his own particular set of beliefs to the table in that he seems to have been a uniquely Hellenizing perennialist within Platonism. But as we mentioned in that episode, the real esoteric action in the Enneads is not to be found primarily in Plotinus's construction of tradition, nor in the esoteric hermeneutics with which he interrogates that tradition, but in his apophatic treatment of the first principle of reality, the one good. This will be the subject of this episode. Back in episode 56, when we introduced Philo of Alexandria, we mentioned that Philo was ahead of his time in the way he made God an entity beyond the grasp of the human mind or of human language. Well, now we've come to another Alexandrian, a few centuries later, who takes this idea and raises it to another level entirely. If we want to, we can trace a kind of Alexandrian approach via Philo, Basilides, and Clement all of whom were thinkers who removed God from the realm of the sayable and thinkable in serious ways. Indeed, Basilides seems to have been really serious about this metaphysics of unsaying, although we only have a single quotation on which to base our judgment here. But with Plotinus, we're entering a new kind of literary world, one in which the unsaying of higher reality becomes a kind of performative text which will not quit which continually returns to its own conclusions, modifying or negating them in an effort to bring the reader to the place where she thinks, not that, and not that either, in fact, nothing possibly. And of course, the unsaying of the highest reality can be described as an act of the esoteric, which makes Plotty one of the most accomplished esoteric writers in the Western canon, And for those gentle listeners questioning whether it really makes sense to consider apophasis in terms of the esoteric, we shall address this issue in this episode and try to justify our approach here. Listeners unfamiliar with the apophatic as a genre will want to go back to listen to episode 96 of the podcast, along with the associated members episode for the inner esoteric elite. Because if we take the apophatic speech act seriously we're never truly going to be pronouncing final conclusions about what it is aiming to achieve or what it is saying or how it fits into the logical system of thought of a given author because the characteristic of strong written transcendence or apophatic language is that these kinds of final meaning events are indefinitely promised but never given. Actually, for Plotinus and his ilk, thinkers for whom it is the doing of Platonist assent, which is really where the action is, right? The action is not in the text, it's in 
philosophic anagoge, you could say that the written word serves to point at an encounter with the one in this case, which if you have it, needs no linguistic affirmation or description. And if you don't have it, well, we can't really tell you what it's like. So two points I'd like to make here. Firstly, that high-level apophasis is always difficult to talk about. And here at the Schwepp, we take it seriously and we like to err on the side of maddening endless spirals of unsaying rather than making statements like, Plotinus says the one is ineffable, which, although true, kind of de-apophaticizes the one, because, after all, ineffable is just a bog-standard predicate. So, don't expect a straightforward history of ideas when we address apophatic writing. To make it too straightforward is to lose any real connection with the type of text in question. But secondly, here's our first main structural locus of the esoteric in Plotinus's text, the encounter with the one. What scholars sometimes talk about as mystical union with the one is, as is well known, hedged about in Plotinus's text with some really serious apophatic strictures. You can't reason about it. It has no existence or essence. Speech doesn't work. But at the same time, it is the non-experience, which is the ultimate possession, the ultimate achievement of the philosopher, which makes the philosopher want to chuck even the whole noetic beauty out the window by comparison. By positing this apophatic event, this event which we kind of are tempted to describe as an experience, except Plotinus keeps telling us it's not an experience and it can't be an experience because there's nothing to experience. By positing this apophatic event, which is something you do, Plotinus is engaging in a very strong esoteric speech act. There is a de facto inner esoteric elite, right? Those who have seen or touched or had a proto-apprehension of the one and those who have not. And incidentally, seeing, touching, and having a proto-apprehension are three of the ways in which Plotinus describes this contact or encounter with the one. Always careful to say, but it's not really a touching. It's not really a seeing. The non-being of the one, we are told at Ennead 6, 9, chapter 11, is self-hiding, self-revealing only, only to those who can encounter it directly. By reading about the encounter, it will be clear to the reader that Plotinus is one of those who have had it, right? And he, the reader, or she, the reader, is, well, I can't speak for anyone else here, but I will admit my own lack of direct understanding of exactly what Plotinus is on about here. Something happens, and it's something radically different from anything we would consider uh, on the spectrum of normal cognition or even abnormal cognition, even crazy psychedelic experience. We're talking about something that isn't any of those things. But Plotinus certainly makes me want to know what he's on about, or rather to unknow all that which is not the encounter with the one, at least while the encounter lasts, which of course cannot be said to last, being atemporal above even the eternity of the noose. So, by making me want to experience this, or non-experience this encounter, perhaps that gives us some entry into why Plotinus is writing this 
type of text. And we'll get back to that at the end of this episode. Now, this kind of discourse is often discussed under the label negative theology, or in a non-Christian context, apophatic writing, a genre which we have discussed before on the Schwepp. Now, various people have tried to create taxonomies or descriptions of the sort of basic form of apophatic writing. And you usually end up with something like this. The writer makes a statement A, then follows this with statement B, which contradicts A, then gives the finishing touches with statement C, which denies that either A or B is true, but also refuses to offer a D, which might be a positive statement of what really is the case. So to take a Platinian example from Ennead 6.8, a highly apophatic and cataphatic text, which will appear again in the podcast in the context of Plotinus's engagement with Sethian Gnosticism, as an aside, in this treatise, the one is the origin of all noble and majestic things, but also, in a certain sense, not their origin. Entirely unrelated to anything, and yet related to everything as the principle of all. It cannot even be described with the verb to be. It must be stripped of all predicates. So, this is pretty classic apophasis. When you can't even say is, you know you're in the territory of the via negativa at a high register. So Plotinus is saying, it's this, it's not this. It's this, it's not this. But he's not telling us what it is. He's saying you can't even say it is, right? It's open-ended. But with Plotinus, we are often left waiting for the C part, the, the higher synthesis of the two A and B contradictory parts, which brings them into some kind of coincidentia oppositorum. He often, in fact, usually doesn't state this. Indeed, while Plotinus, by my reading, is a highly apophatic writer, he's not a writer who follows much of an apophatic formula. For that kind of thing, you want Iamblichus Proclus or the Pseudo-Dionysius, and later apophatic writers, who take in different ways a kind of programmatic, almost formulaic approach to unsaying the higher realities that need unsaying. For Plotinus, it's much more of a kind of exploratory, ever-circling attempt at attaining to the one good through text, which can never arrive at its goal, but the circling itself is in some way anagogic, leading us toward the good in thought, although we know that thought can never reach the good. Indeed, the knowledge that thought can never reach the good the genuine acceptance of this fact, of our own limitation, may be a necessary step on the path to letting go of thought as we ascend along the road to reality, as John Rist has termed it. To quote Wallace in this context, quote, In contrast to Plato, Plotinus's treatises exhaust the resources of language in endeavoring to attain successively closer approximations to what remains finally inexpressible, end of quote. So, Plotinus can be described as a highly apophatic writer, but not if you want to look at apophatic language as something kind of formulaic. He's a freestyle apophatic artist, unlike the later Platonists. Our special episodes on the secret lives of the undescended soul and of the one in Plotinus give some examples of this kind of text. And if you want to go straight to the source, just crack open the Enneads, pretty much anywhere in the sixth Ennead, which is the one devoted to the one, and start reading to have your mind blown by the ways in which Plotinus tells you, at length and in rich metaphysical detail, 
that he cannot tell you what he's telling you. But our appreciation of Plotinus as an apophatic writer is also increased when we read him across Eniatic texts. This is what I would call the synoptic apophatic reading of Plotinus, basically taking the Enneads as a single work of philosophy and then looking for A and B statements, um, contradictory statements, which should somehow point to a higher resolution that isn't quite there in the text. By such a reading, we can find much more thorough and deeper apophatic structures within his work as a whole. Thus, we might read and he had 5, 5, 13, lines 12 to 13, where he tells us to allow that the one is, so cataphatically affirming something like the existence of the one, alongside 6, 7, 23, lines 15 to 16, where we're told that there would be nothing wrong if anyone were to affirm that the good is not. May ani. And this uh, may ani is a very rich resonant term in the history of Platonism and indeed in Parmenides. So we have, if we want to read cross-textually like this, we have two completely opposed statements about the one. Similarly, if we move from treatise to treatise, we'll learn here that the one subsists, but over there that it does not subsist, uh, that it does not have hypostasis. Here that it is act, energia, but there that it is not act, here that it is free, but there that it is not free. Here that it has life, but there that it does not have life. This way of reading Plotinus will raise some red flags to certain scholars, and for pretty solid reasons. The problem is, potentially, that if we simply embrace every contradictory thing about the one good which Plotinus says in different places, and read them all as if they were A and B parts of an apophatic construction, we may run the risk of, for example, not paying close attention to the exact philosophic context to which Plotinus is alluding in each passage. What I mean is something like this. It makes sense to say that the good is the good from our perspective as embodied humans. And so lots of passages will affirm this of the good. We'll say it is good. It is the good. That is because for us as human souls, it is the source of all goodness. This position is found really throughout the Enneads. But from its own perspective, not that it has a perspective, but if we were to imagine a perspective of the good, it is not good. Nothing, including good, can be attributed to the one in its non-essence. Now, these are not really an apophatic pair of contradictory statements, because their apparent contradiction is only apparent. The way we speak about a reality will change for Plotinus quite radically, depending on the perspective from which he is writing. Sometimes Plotinus will write from the perspective of the noose, or even of the one, and this is where his text gets deeply wonderful, but also deeply difficult, because what kind of Greek is spoken at the level of the noetic eternity, much less the ultimate silence beyond eternity? There is no Greek there. Uh, Plotinus tells us this numerous times. There is no language in the noose, never mind the one. He still will use uh, language to describe or try to describe what these levels of reality are like. So we don't just go crazy and make everything in Plotinus into a huge apophatic mush. But we read our way into the text, allowing Plotty to lead our thought to different levels of reality as he speaks from the vantage point of these different levels, insofar as he thinks he can. And he often points out that he can't, 
but he's going to try anyway. That being said, though, we've seen from Ennead 6.8 already, a passage in which he clearly embeds highly charged apophatic paradoxes right next to each other. So there's no possibility of mistaking his meaning here, even if his meaning is that he can't really mean what he says. The one is ineffable and unthinkable, and by speaking of it using intentional contradiction, we're able to give some idea of what it is not, even if we cannot say what it is. Or to quote Plotinus from that treatise, chapter 8, lines 2 to 6, Due to the impossibility of saying what is appropriate to it, we say these things. Nevertheless, not only can we find nothing to say in accordance with it, katautu, but neither can we even say anything about it, periautu, properly speaking. But if one is intrigued by the idea of reading Plotinus across Enneads, treatises 6-7 and 6-8, read together, constitute one of the heaviest apophatic mindfucks ever put to papyrus. Now, these treatises are chronologically one after the other, and some scholars consider them in some sense a single work. And Plotinus is certainly interested in discussing the one good qua good in both works. So both works are about the good rather than the one, even though they're the same non-entity. And there's much thematic continuity across the borders between these two treatises. But I would say this actually pulls in favor of the kind of reading methodology I'm proposing here, because 6.8, despite the apophatic passage in chapters 8 and 9, which we've been citing so far in this episode, is actually full of some shockingly cataphatic ordinary predications made of the good. But if we read the work in tandem with the earlier 6.7, which goes full-bore apophatic at numerous junctures and just strips away everything, Plotinus even deconstructs the use of the definite article, the, when we say the good. He says, we can't even say the. Uh, We arrive at a beautifully performative apophatic text. Or in the words of Armstrong, we, quote, see its strongly positive affirmations about the one as part of the exercise of the most radical negative theology, that is, of the negatio negationis, end of quote. So negatio negationis, is a fancy Latin way of saying the negation of negation. And this is one of the wonderful things we find in apophatic discourse, whereby you can deny something to the God or supreme being or whatever you're talking about. You say it is not to be associated with anything. And then you can say it's not even not to be associated with anything. You can deny your own denials. And then things get uh, very high octane. Incidentally, if we do read 6.7 and 6.8 as a single text, I think that text would have to be considered Plotinus's masterwork of performative written metaphysics. Now, okay, let's turn to some of the reasons for Plotinian unsaying. We've made things difficult, but there are nevertheless certain well-trodden and legitimate ways to make things a little bit easier. One of these is to look at the reasons why the one good is unsayable and unthinkable. And these can be listed in a pretty straightforward way, actually, although the list leaves out a lot of context. If you went up to Plotinus and said, tell me, why is the one ineffable, arreton, but skip the whole attempt to push language beyond what it's capable of and to speak the unspeakable, just tell me why you can't speak it. He might give you the following. And note here a problem which hasn't received enough attention in the literature. 
probably because it's bloody difficult, Plotinus denies that the one exercises any form of consciousness or thought or epistemic activity. It's not a god who knows stuff, right? But he also denies that any epistemic activity of it is possible in lower realities, including us, but also including the noose at its highest level of power and simplicity. And here's the kicker. The two conversations, the two denials, denial of any kind of thought to the one and denial of any thought of the one, often merge and you can't tell which position he is stating or whether they amount to the same thing. <laughs> see Ennead 6-7 and see whether you can figure out whether he's saying there is no noesis of the one or the one does not exercise noesis or whether he is making both statements simultaneously. Now to our list. Remember I said we we're going to try to make things easier, not harder. So First of all, the one, as we know from Plato's Parmenides and a lot of Middle Platonist speculation, and I include Neo-Pythagorean ideas about the monad and the tohen in this uh, Middle Platonist category, the one is perfectly simple. That means utterly without parts, without structure, without any hint of the dyadic nature. Now, for reasons to do with the structure of cognition itself, no thought could possibly grasp such a being. It's not just that the one is simple. The one in its reality, let's say, denies the very possibility of multiplicity, which always must be ontologically posterior to it. So even the most refined noesis has some multiplicity, some movement within it. It attempts to grasp the one in its true simplicity and, as it were, slides off without grasping anything. So a true simplicity cannot be cognized because all cognition involves some kind of movement or parts or difference between act and actor. Then again, the one is perfection itself or hyper-perfection, that at which all perfections aim without ever achieving. If it were to think in some way or somehow exercise some kind of hyper-cognition, I should say here, of course, Gentle listener, I know that in one early treatise, uh, Plotinus does attribute to the one katanoesis, some kind of hyper-cognitive faculty, and we can add to that in other places he kind of suggests that the one has a sort of inner life or inner cognitive something going on, but he's always very careful also to completely strip away any such idea in many other passages. Um... If it were to think in some way, this would imply change. And if it changed, and this is a very old line of argument, incidentally, if it changed, it would have to change either for the better or the worse. And there can be no better than the perfect, nor can it become worse because then it wouldn't be perfect anymore. Thus, it cannot exercise thought of any kind. This argument, I think, can also be mustered to argue for its unthinkability by us. If we can think the one the good, truly grasp it, we have a thought which is not a thought of perfection, but is perfection, right? We are thinking perfection, or rather is not at all. This thought is non-existent. Such a thought raises similar problems. If we have such a thought and then think something less than perfect afterwards, we have made the perfect worse in a sense, but this is impossible. And this kind of thinking in a way, can lead us straight to 
things like the ontological argument for the existence of God by Anselm of Canterbury, and all the way down to Bertrand Russell, if you want to get headily logical about this stuff. And you might find it very unconvincing and very abstract, but then we do have to think that Bertrand Russell, standing in the queue in the shop one day, mulling over Anselm's ontological argument and then saying, my God, it actually works. It's actually right. He has actually proven the existence of God. Bertrand Russell was no slouch. Anyway, then again, language pertains to the soul in the cosmos, and it's not even present at the level of noose, much less of the one, so of course words cannot express the one's nature. And Plotinus, incidentally, has a very uh, rather stoicizing linked approach to thought and words. He sees speech as a kind of externalized form of thought, of dianoia, of discursive thought. So if something is denied of language, it probably safe to say for Plotinus it's denied of logismos dianoia, the, the discursive ways of thinking. As he tells us it, and he adds 6 9, chapter 4, lines 11 through 12, quote, it can neither be said nor written, citing uh, Plato's Parmenides, 142a, but he's using this line from Plato in a context of ineffability, which might have made no sense to Plato, or maybe we're wrong here. That's always going to be a mystery, probably. Now, those are some of the main reasons why the one is ineffable. And as you can see, they are perfectly sayable reasons, right? The, the, the reasons for the one's ineffability are not themselves necessarily apophatically expressed. They can be expressed in quite straightforward terms. In other words, logical thinking, discursive thought can see its own limits and describe them quite well. Now, what have scholars made of all this? Let's look at some of the scholarly takes on Plotinian apophasis, which is obviously a very difficult thing to talk about. I take it that Plotinian unsaying is fundamentally not susceptible to full treatment in humanist academic terms. How do we talk about that which cannot be talked about? Nevertheless, scholarship in the 20th century, especially, has made some major inroads toward at least preparing us as readers to make the most of Plotinus's unsaying. So let's look at a few approaches. The old approach, most common in the 19th century, is to say that Plotinus wrote this way because he was a mystic. Some scholars, of course, still say this. Our question here at the Schwepp is, of course, always, what do you mean by mystic? Older ideas that Plotinus was a mystic and thus not a true philosopher have thankfully mostly fallen by the wayside. If we define mysticism as something like the position that one can have ineffable experiences of union with the highest divine reality, then all late Platonism is mysticism. And surely no one wants to say that none of these people were philosophers. Well, the old decline and fall of Greek rationalism discourse did pretty much want to say this. Um, E.R. Dodds famously positioning Plotinus as the last true rationalist, despite his mysticism which was like an aberration within his otherwise rational thought, followed by the unspeakable muck of Iamblichus et al. But surely the philosophers should get to define what philosophy means, no? In which case, philosophy, all of philosophy, is aimed at one thing, mystical union. And all the extra benefits acquired along the path, purifications, um, accurate knowledge about the physical world, virtues, uh, visions of noetic beauty. These are all pretty much just side benefits along the way to the one true goal of philosophic life, which is the union. So mysticism, there you go. Later generations of scholars have said that Plotinus can be both a mystic and a philosopher. 
better, but still maybe making artificial category distinctions here. The appreciation of scholars like Brehier and Armstrong, Henry and Schweitzer in particular, that Plotinus doesn't just posit an ineffable first principle, but argues in solid ways for precisely why it must be ineffable, right? So he has a rational approach to the fact that not all of reality can be understood rationally, leads us to a kind of hyper-rationalism rather than an irrationalism. Un méthode, en quelque sorte, trans-intellectuel, as Pierre Adot puts it. A somehow trans-intellectual method. It's true, Brehier, in his study of Plotinus, does say, quote, in asserting that the source of being escapes every intellectual determination, does not Plotinus become the first author in the West of an irrationalistic metaphysics? End of quote. But when you read Brehier, it's clear that he means something that might be put more comfortably in English as hyper-rationalistic than irrationalistic. Um, Plotinus is maybe the first to do that, to do the work of seriously exploring the boundary between the sayable and the unsayable in a kind of relentless way, and to put the prime reality well beyond that boundary point, but always for reasons which he's at pains to explain. So this isn't really irrational in the normal sense of the term. And Brehier gets this. But is this right? Does Plotinus perhaps posit his ineffable one purely on the basis of the kinds of logical deductions we talked about above, the list of reasons why the one is ineffable? Well, a lot of scholars have doubted this. Armstrong, to take one example, and uh, Dylan follows him in this, sees the cataphatic apophatic dialectic in Plotinus's work. So the way, the way he wants to say things about the one, but then he also wants to deny that he can say anything about the one. He sees this as arising at least partly from the serious job Plotty had in harmonizing a number of traditional sources which he found canonical. In layman's terms, if you want the first one of Plato's Parmenides, plus the form of the good from the Republic, plus the one dyad metaphysics of Plato's unwritten doctrines, plus a bunch of other stuff, throw in some Numenius, you're going to end up in a situation where no statement about the reality in question can be quite right. So starting from the fact of the complexity of the metaphysical tradition that Plotinus inherited, Armstrong says, quote, For this reason, it is not possible to make any more definite statement about the one of Plotinus than that it is in his system the first and ultimate reality. End of quote. That is true. That is kind of the only thing we can say about the one in Plotinus. And then we can't even really say that. But anyway, there is, I think, some truth in this statement that his the traditional materials he's working with um, do constrain him in certain ways and make his uh, ways of speaking um, perhaps more difficult than they would need to be. But I think this is a necessary rather than a sufficient um, condition when attempting to account for Plotinus's strong unsaying of the one. So to put that in less fancy terms, Yes, there is this very rich and sometimes contradictory tradition that he's working with, and that helps explain some aspects of the way he engages with apophatic text, but it's not enough to explain it, I would say. It's only part of the picture. Then there's the school of thought, perhaps unfashionable nowadays, but still well represented among scholars of Plotinus, who say that the reason he describes the one 
and particularly the encounter with the one as unsayable, is that, well, it is. He encountered the one, his mind was totally silent, or switched off, or whatever. And then, when he found himself back here in time and space, mind completely blown, he said, that was amazing, uh, I'm never going to be able to describe it or even comprehend it the way I'm thinking now, but I have to try, because this encounter is too sublime for me not to tell the other philosophers about it. They need to see it too, so I need to invite them, I need to tell them that there is this ineffable encounter waiting for them and try to draw them onwards to experience it for themselves. So, this approach, which assumes a reality at the heart of the Platonian descriptions of the encounter with the One, an encounter which, as he tells us, cannot be reasoned or described in language, I would call this the modified mysticism thesis. While we must take lots of things into account when reading Plotinian apophasis, such as Plato's writings, the thought of Numenius, Aristotle, the Neopythagoreans, and so on and so forth, at the end of the day, we also need to acknowledge that this event or non-event, this profoundly beautiful beyond beauty encounter of presence, which he circles around in his text so endlessly, this is something he did. Again, not a sufficient explanation, but some would argue a necessary piece of the puzzle. There are also scholars of Plotinus who either deny this entirely for one reason or another. Reasons can range from hardcore epistemological agenda, like Wayne Proudfoot's denial that there are such things as experiences unconditioned by language, to careful philologists and historians of philosophy who think that there might well be something, well, mystical, going on in Plotinus's thought. But whatever that is, we can't really say anything useful about it as scholars, since after all, Plotinus insists on this point again and again. So we should just concentrate on the stuff we can say something about, right? So there's a whole spectrum of reasons you might doubt, let's say, Plotinian mystical experience. And, of course, as we are always keen to point out here at the Schwepp, Plotinus does not describe this as an experience. So those who say at the heart of it all is a mystical experience have to argue somehow that Plotinus is wrong when he says it's not an experience. It's really mystical experience, even though he says it isn't. Um, these are the wholehearted believers in a reified mysticism, generally avid recruiters of Plotinus to the cause, right? There is such a thing as mystical experience, it has such and such characteristics, and Plotinus is a great source of evidence for this. Now the problem for this approach tends to be, I would argue, that if it's okay to say, I don't know, the essence of mysticism is non-dual consciousness, right? This seems to be the buzzword in New Age and New Age adjacent thought at the moment. Everything is non-dual. Ten years ago it was transcendent union. You can pick your poison, really. But anyway, if you can say that the essence of mysticism is non-dual consciousness, and then we find it cross-culturally expressed in different ways, then why does Plotinus spend so much time telling us, brutally insisting, that what he's talking about is not consciousness, is not experience? Okay, this all gets difficult because Greek has no words for either experience or consciousness, so you can maybe argue what he meant was experience and consciousness, but he just didn't put it that way because he didn't have the words for it. Um, there's whole arguments to be had here, 
But I just want to point out that the easy affirmation that, quote, Plotty was a mystic, as though that kind of frees us, for example, from the grueling work of intellectual stripping away of attributes that he proposes, it just seems a bit cheap to me. It's too easy. Plotinus would have just said, the one is ineffable, and the encounter with the one does not partake of any duality whatsoever, and he would have left it at that, if that's what he was aiming for. Now, he does say that, but he doesn't leave it at that. He uses that as a launching point for apophatic texts which mess with our heads in a way that saying Plotinus has non-dual consciousness does not mess with our heads. There have been lots of other approaches to Plotinus's unsaying as well. I myself have found Michael Sell's approach to Plotinus's apophatic techniques um, as a kind of poetic genre very helpful. The apophatic writer isn't telling us something so much as doing something, or inviting us to do it along with him or her. Raoul Mortley's wide-bore study of the rise of the apophatic, or rather the rise of distrust in the power of language, in later antiquity, entitled From Word to Silence, is a very helpful contextualizer for all this material. Uh, Festugier's Révélation d'Hermètre-Trismégiste is also a beauty for filling in the kinds of thinking around at the time and helps us situate at least some of the choices Plotinus makes in his writing because we have all these uh, middle Platonist writers and uh, middle Platonistic writers who are talking about how God must be beyond thought and kind of giving the same kinds of arguments that Plotinus gives, even though they don't go nearly as apophatic as he does. And lastly, on the subject of scholars that we dig, we quite dig the text-critical, almost analytic chopping up of Platinian apophatic writing to be found in Zeke Mazur's posthumous opus, even if we find its main conclusions over-optimistic in, well, the power of analytic discourse to comprehend what's going on in Plotinus. So all of these approaches and more can be very helpful. However, and this conclusion won't surprise avid Schwepp listeners, We shall need at the end of the day to interpret Plotinus, however we interpret him, just being damn sure to leave a blank, silent space in our interpretation. The space which we can't fill with any words whatsoever, with any theory, with any labels, and make sure that that space stays empty, no matter how much we think we understand, no matter how much we fill in the blanks about Plotinus's thought and try to systematize it and try to understand it and nut it out, we have to leave that space blank. And that's what Plotinus is telling us to do with our thinking. He's also telling us to do things that transcend thought, but vis-a-vis our thinking, our dialectic, he wants to make damn sure that you have a space that is not just an empty space, it's empty of even space. It's just complete stillness and silence and lack of conceptual categories or structures. Now, returning briefly to the question of the esoteric, Um, How is all this esoteric? Well, one way we can say that this is esoteric is that it's often expressed in terms which conflate what you might think of as a self-hiding secret. In other words, if something's ineffable, it can't be revealed by definition, so it's a self-hiding secret. You can throw it out there right in the open and still no one's going to be able to understand it or access it because that's the nature of the ineffable, right? In Plotinus, that territory often is conflated with the territory of the initiatory secret. As we saw in episode 115, the adjutant of the temple 
is sometimes used, to take one example, as an image for the nature of the one. And the aduton of the temple, of course, is the place you're not allowed to go unless you're the priest, right? Unless you're the initiate, in the case of temenos-based mystery cults. He uses initiatory language a lot in the context of the one. And at 6, 9, 11, line 1 and following, really lays it out. The one is ineffable, and this is the esoteric meaning of the mystery commandment of non-disclosure to the uninitiated. Since the one is non-disclosable, only those who have seen can understand. So there's never been a better dovetailing of the unsayable and the that which ought not to be said than that little programmatic statement from Plotinus. The ineffability of the one flickers back and forth in Plotinus's text between that which is just purely by its own nature unsayable and that which ought to be hidden in a cultic sort of vocabulary. And the two just interweave as part of the, the same culture of philosophic silence we talked about in episode 115. Logically, it doesn't make sense to hide the unrevealable, right? Rhetorically, it can make sense, but only if we understand the kinds of rhetorics abroad and afoot in Platonism, which I hope we've done a good job of sort of outlining in our history of Middle Platonism. So I'd like to turn for one moment to apophatic text as anagogic performance in Plotinus, because we can ask the question always, why write about the unwritable? And we can understand it very often as an act of the esoteric, of hiding and revealing, publicly hiding and revealing higher knowledge. Now, in Plotinus, I have to say, like the cavalcade of gods in Plato's Phaedrus, there is no jealousy. You don't ever get the feeling from Plotinus, or I don't anyway, reading him, that he wants to exclude people from the experience of the higher realities and from the very rare and rarefied experience of the one, which he thinks is open only to a very, very select group of people. But that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just how the world is. He wants you to become an initiate. So his esotericism is like the esotericism of a Freemason who really likes you and wants you to join his lodge, right? He's like, there are mysteries. They're amazing. They're fantastic. I can't tell you what they are, but you need to come and see for yourself. He's not the haughty Freemason who's like, people like you never get invited to our lodge, right? He's the other Freemason. He's the friendly Freemason. That's the kind of attitude he has. This is all protreptic. This is all meant to summon you out of your normal way of thinking and get into the higher levels of thinking, cognition, reality, which are the noose and what's beyond the noose which he tends not to name. He wants you to become an initiate. If it were possible, he would want everyone to become an initiate. It happens not to be, but that's not because the one is jealous or the plays favorites or anything like that. It's the necessity of the one's outpouring of goodness into the world of matter, which can never be a perfect image of its source because of the nature of matter itself. And with that, I would invite our listeners to enter into the place where that which cannot be revealed becomes that which must not be revealed, which in turn becomes that which cannot be revealed 
in an endless oscillation which never comes down on either side of the fence so that we create a space of philosophic silence housing the inevitable which cannot be housed and stay esoteric.